Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2017 at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and this is Advancement Live. I'm the host of today's episode, Andrew Gosen. On today's live broadcast, we're talking about using data to understand alumni engagement. And when you think about it, this is a really timely topic. We've never before had so many options when it comes to using research tools and techniques to collect information about our audiences and their behavior. And on top of that, there's a range of audience behavior that we've never really had before when you start thinking about things like digital engagement and activity on websites and social media and so on and so forth. So this is a great opportunity, but too much choice can also be a mixed blessing. How do you choose the right tools, the right questions? How do you choose the right audience? Can you do something with the results? Today's guests have an abundance of experience grappling with questions like these, and it's going to be a great conversation here today on Advancement Live. Advancement Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be part of our live broadcasts by sharing your knowledge and participate in today's discussion by tweeting us at Higher Ed Live. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com or you can take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Let me now give a quick thank to our, thanks to our sponsors. Today's episode is made possible by Constituent Research. Constituent Research is a boutique research and consulting firm for the higher education sector. Constituent Research uses a range of qualitative and quantitative approaches to help you better understand and connect with your alumni, donors, students, prospects, and other audiences. Find out more by visiting constituentresearch.com, and we're tweeting out a link. We are tweeting out a link right now where you can sign up for a newsletter to receive monthly higher ed research insights and best practices. Higher Ed Live is produced by M Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Trusted by thousands of higher ed professionals, M Stoner webinars are jam-packed with timely, strategic, and actionable knowledge. Check out their library of on-demand content from digital storytelling to myth-busting websites. We are tweeting out a link, laying out the webinars right now. M. Stoner and Constituent Research, thank you so much. We couldn't have this conversation without you. Now I'd like to welcome today's guests. First up, we have Mike Hannes. Mike founded Constituent Research, LLC, in 2014 after extensive experience managing and conducting research projects for colleges, universities, graduate school programs, and higher education firms and organizations. Mike has designed and conducted projects across the constituent life cycle, from prospective students to current students, alumni, and donors. Mike previously worked in Slover Lynette Strategies Higher Education Practice. He has also worked at Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand as a benchmarking and survey analyst, and as a senior advisor in statistics to the New Zealand government. Joining Mike is Melissa Shipke, Melissa is CEO and founder of Tassel. Melissa received a Bachelor's of Science in Marketing and Bachelor of Arts in Advertising from Penn State in 2009. From there, she launched her career at a Fortune 200 company as a sales manager with a focus on marketplace analytics. After graduating with an MBA from Rowan University in 2014, she went on to pursue a technology startup, Tassel, which helps institutions streamline non-giving focused engagement metrics using modern technologies. Today's final guest is Jennifer Cunningham. Jennifer is Assistant VP for Engagement at Lehigh University. Prior to joining Lehigh, Jennifer worked at her alma mater, Cornell, in a range of capacities, most of them involving data. 
Previously, she ran a copywriting and resume writing business in Seattle and worked at advertising agencies on accounts including Microsoft, MasterCard, AT&T Wireless, and Lowe's Hotels. Mike, Melissa, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think your resumes uh, speak for themselves. Um, I can't think of a better team of three people to tackle this particular topic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So let's go ahead and dive on in. Um, audience, please don't hesitate to ask questions using the hashtag HigherEdLive. I will do my best to work these questions into the conversation as we get going. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, as the four of us were talking about the format for the show, we spent about five minutes talking about this in a very theoretical way and realized, no, 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 that's not going to make it easy for people to grapple with the issues at all. Instead, we're going to approach this topic through case studies. Um, the way it's going to work is that Jennifer and Melissa are each going to talk us through two situations in which an alumni affairs office used research to gather data about alumni engagement and then used that data to make decisions. Um, Jennifer and Melissa, Mike and I are going to be jumping in with questions as you walk us through your scenarios. And I will tip my own hand by saying that I'm particularly interested in knowing about the business problems that you were trying to solve and how and why you chose the research approach that you finally settled on. Um, so Jennifer, let's go ahead and start things off with you. What have you got for us? Okay, so I'm going to start out um, on it with a business case study that was um, helped to be solved by the Net Promoter Score. Um, and I actually talked about Net Promoter in depth on a higher ed live. Um, how long was that ago? Maybe a year or two ago? Um, so if you want to tweet out uh, that, it talks a lot more about the mechanics of it. So I'm not going to dive into that now. Um, but Net Promoter is a management tool that allows you to, um, to gauge the loyalty of your alumni at events or overall. Um, and it's a way to uh, measure the science, sort of a social science. Um, it's the question, would you recommend this activity to a classmate or fellow alum? Um, and then based on people's responses, you can break them out based on their response. If they answer nine or 10, they are what we call promoters and they just love everything. And um, even if they had a bad experience, they still talk about how wonderful things were. Um, they're just in love with you or your institution. Um, people who are passives are like, man, that was fine. But you know, I had a great time at this bachelorette party I went to last weekend too. So, you know, it was okay. And then your detractors are people who um, would not recommend your activity to a fellow alum or classmate. Um, so the problem we were trying to solve at Cornell and here at Lehigh uh, was, you know, reunions are wonderful. Um, we spend so much time and effort and resources in bringing alumni back to campus because we do know from other uh, data that people who come back to campus tend to be um, more loyal and more engaged. They come to other events, they volunteer, they give more. So it's a 101 principle of great alumni engagement that you have reunions. Um, the issue with the reunion at Cornell was um, not so much that it wasn't fabulous, but it was how do we get more people to come? How do we put our resources towards the best kind of events? Because um, we were doing 600 events uh, throughout the weekend at one point. And here at Lehigh, that was also creeping up. Um, and we were trying to figure out what is it that people really love about the reunion weekend? What is it that's going to get them back and get them back again and again and again? Um, 
so we, in both instances, did a net promoter survey after the event. And what we found was that um, the things that we thought really, really mattered to people in terms of the guest experience um, were not as important as we thought. So we forever have conversations, for example, about what to serve at dinner um, and how to move people around campus and what the marketing should look like and um, you know what events to hold. And what we found was that people who come back to reunion and love it um, come back for the people, for the other people. Um, and it's important to have good events. It's important to have decent food. But if you know, if not everything is perfect, seeing the people that they were friends with and having the ability to make new friends while they're there was really why people come back. Now, the detractors, the people who would not recommend reunion, yes, they would say things like, um, you know, this food was terrible. I can't believe I came back for this. Um, but then there was usually something else. It wasn't just that the food was bad. It was something that we did, like they asked for a kosher meal and we didn't honor that. Or um, they had to wait two hours to get their food or whatever the thing was. It was more than just the food wasn't good. There was something else um, around that. The promoters, um, they would mention things like the food or the transportation or the dorms or whatever it was, but it didn't, um, it, it didn't detract from their experience at all. So, um, and we found the same thing here at Lehigh. It was about who else is here and um, how else do I interact with people and meet people? So here at Lehigh, um, we are doing more around class affinity versus just a come one, come all. We were just doing um, all alumni reunions. Um, and we found people really want to, do want to see their classmates. Um, so we're doing a lot more to market um, that opportunity to see your fellow classmates this year. Um, and we're doing more things that will connect people while they're here. Um, and things like social media. We hadn't really used social media a lot, but we're introducing a few tools this year that will help classmates bring other classmates back. Um, so that was one example was reunion. And again, because we spent so many resources on it, it seemed like it, it really was worth the deep dive. I mean, it took a long time to analyze that and to come up with those things, um, but I think it will pay off in the end. Um, the second case study I have about Net Promoter are senior alumni events. And senior means uh, not senior class, but the seniors, um, people who are uh, 35 years plus out. And um, we were doing these events called Back, Back to the Classroom here on Lehigh's campus. And they're wonderful and they sell out um, and everybody seemed to be having a good time. Um, but we didn't put a lot of resources into it and we were only doing it once a year, um, started doing the surveys for these and found they are getting hundreds. People love these events and um, everything about them, coming back to campus, being intellectually stimulated. So um, now we're going to expand these events um, to maybe do a three or four day activity in the summer where they actually come and stay in the dorms. Um, taking them out to other states, um, Phoenix and uh, Tucson and Miami and other retirement areas um, because they were so successful. We got such good feedback on them. Um, so that's those are two examples of just using pretty simple data and doing some deep dives into those um, into that to change the way that we do business and where we put our resources and our emphasis. Jennifer, thanks. Those were, those were fantastic examples of how NPS can be used. 
Um, there are two things I wanted to pull out of your comments, and then maybe Mike has some thoughts as well. Uh, the first is that that NPS is a is a pretty simple metric, and for the viewers, um, if you look at the hashtag, uh, we have tweeted out the link to the show that Jennifer referenced earlier, where you can actually get into the mechanics of how NPS works. But I think one thing that I've always been impressed with is how simple the NPS concept is. So it doesn't require a lot of staff overhead to implement it, and it's it's flexible enough that you can actually deploy it in these two reasonably different contexts and still be able to get some good information out of it. Yep. So the second point, uh, you, you actually illustrated this really nicely. Data doesn't do you any good if you don't have somebody who has a mandate to spend time thinking about what the data is telling you. Yep. Um, and then I think you've taken it to the next step beyond that. You're not just thinking about what the data is telling you, but you're you're actually implementing it. Can you tell us a little bit about how your, your staff respond to that opportunity to have both the data and then um, have this guidance that's based on actual research? Yeah, so at Cornell, uh, I guess it's been six years now, um, that was my job, was to look at all of this data across all of our programs and try to make some sense of it, um, try to find the stories that, um, that went across the department. Um, here at Lehigh, I do not have that, but I because I have the experience of Net Promoter and some other things, um, and we have really talented um, business intelligence or advancement services um, folks here who have um, a lot of data. They have good reporting skills, and I've got a um, graduate intern um, who's looking at collecting all the Net Promoter, and I'm actually doing a lot of the education to the staff um, now. Um, so yeah, I think it takes when your institution is new to it, it really does take someone who is either willing to spend a lot of time crunching the data themselves in Excel um, and using the talents of the advancement services team uh, as you can get them. Um, and, um, and then at an institution like Lehigh that actually was pretty um, using data in a lot of different ways. So the mindset was already here. Um, I feel like what I've just had to do is steer the ship a little bit um, and get people focused on the things that we care about. But um, yeah, it's, it, it is having someone dedicated to thinking about it all the time and the mindset across the staff. That's really, really key. Mike, how often do you find those, those sorts of attitudes um, when you're working with clients? Um, um, pretty often. Um, I, I did want to touch on um, one thing about class affinity. Um, Jennifer, you made it sound like class affinity is the primary way that you're looking at the alumni groups, but I was curious whether you um, have done any work dividing people up into other affinities, whether it's um, interests, um, subject areas, programs they were in at school, because I find that um, in survey work in particular, that's a big thing that people want to both ask about and then kind of segment their um, population that way. So I wondered if you found, if you do that and whether you found differences in the NPS because of that. Um, so here at Lehigh, we've had, we have not had affinity reunions for a while uh, per se that were really big and supported by staff. People come back all the time on their own um, and we've supported some. Um, but we, I think we do a pretty good job here at Lehigh um, getting affinities together in other ways besides reunion. So we have a really strong athletic partnership that does a lot of that work. Um, we've got uh, Greek affinities and we're, we're working um, on partnering more closely with them. Um, we've got several professional uh, networks that um, a lot of it is volunteer driven and has been in place for a long time. Um, so they do get together in other ways. 
uh, versus coming back to campus, um, although some of them do that as well. So we're looking at class affinity um, as a five-year get them back on campus, kind of the tr traditional um, reunion model uh, that used to be really, really strong here at Lehigh, and we just haven't offered into that. And we have seen um, they, they weren't doing NPS surveys before I got here, so I don't have a lot of data uh, to look at in the past, but when I do look at the reunion or all alumni weekend, it's been called uh, data, it's still class affinity, like most of the people are still on their five-year cycle, even though we haven't been necessarily driving that home. Okay. Um, so there's more research to be done before we fully develop the program, but um, yeah, people do wanna coagulate around affinities, but they, I think they also wanna see their classmates that were here with them on campus. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you. We're now going to pivot from talking about net promoter scores to a different type of score and hand the, the baton over to Melissa. Uh, Melissa, one of your uh, sort of main focal points is engagement score. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and uh, the, the kind of situation I really wanted to cover with everybody because it is such a hot topic in hired right now is just really around Developing out engagement metrics um, at a very high level and in the process you go through in developing out those type of systems. Um, we're often seeing you know, this being a very, again, hot topic in the higher ed space, but becoming very, very quickly a very overwhelming experience for a lot of schools when it comes to really trying to hone in a strategy around building the metrics in, in the different institutions and what those metrics really mean for the institution and how they can be leveraged. Um, so what we do here at Tassel is, is provide a lot of uh, different technologies to help streamline this process and, and help support schools with generating those different engagement scores. But there's really a lot of um, simple steps that can go behind developing that out and really understanding how, what that means to your institution. So typically what we, we take schools through and, and what the different cases we have in schools that are building out different engagement metrics is really at first defining what engagement means to your institution. Um, so engagement can mean uh, something different at every institution. However, we see a lot of value in really segmenting and creating buckets for your different types of engagements. Um, with fundraising being one of the most uh, you know, easily trackable engagements that is, is measured at institutions right now, there's all these other great engagements, whether it's the group involvements that alumni have in their different regions or with, with the university, um, other volunteers and opportunities that they have, like speaking in classes and mentorship programs, um, whether it's career service recipients, which is not necessarily them volunteering to be part of it, but having a really uh, different, unique touch point of engagement with their institution. Uh, and then also how they're engaging with you, whether it's uh, through mobile apps, whether it's through online engagements, these can all be bucketed into general categories that help you kind of look at your engagements in different segments. Um, the big second step that we, we make sure and we see institutions uh, really uh, having a difficult time with is really defining the, the strategy around how you're going to leverage those engagement uh, metrics. So what are your goals and what, what does success mean to you when it, meet, when it comes to putting together uh, engagement scoring? Are you trying to better allocate the resources that you have because your resources are becoming more limited uh, because of budgeting constraints? Are you trying to grow out and develop new programs? Um, or are you trying to just kind of temperature check, engage, you know, how impactful your current engagement strategies are across the board? Um, so that's really understanding and defining what those goals are, are so important in starting with the why as to why you want to develop out those scores. 
Um, the third step we, we always uh, walk through and have schools going through our plan is really to create a data plan because uh, uh, no engagement score uh, is going to be very useful if you don't have the data to support it. And data can be really, really difficult to get uh, in the different institutions. We know it's stored in a variety of different places. Um, a lot of times, a lot of the, the data that you really need and want to use is, is hidden in the record of contacts and a lot of the, the software that a lot of the institutions currently use. So really identifying based off of what your goals are, what your engagements are, where is that data now, what do you currently have, and what do you need, and what plan do you need to put in place to make sure you're getting that data. Because uh, just like Jennifer said, is if you don't have the data, um, it's, you're not going to be able to build a really great strategy. Um, and then the fourth step, which uh, is a really important one as well, tying back to a little bit what Jennifer said as well, is you got to get the buy-in and communicate the plan and get everybody on board with what you're doing uh, when it comes to building out your engagement metric strategy. Because um, without that buy-in and that support, uh, getting people on board, your, your data is not going to be clean, you're not going to have the right data that you need, and you're not going to be able to meet the goals that you have. Um, and then the final step that we walk people through in, in this different um, engagement metric process is really around leveraging that strategy and maintaining it um, and having those checkpoints to evaluate how how your score is being used and leveraged and, and what you can be doing to adapt and change because it's going to evolve over time. I think any school that uh, we talk to or any school that I'm sure a lot of the, the viewers here talk to who have developed that engagement scores always have that I would have done it differently um, kind of mindset after being in it for a while. So the way you develop out your score, you should always make sure that it's adaptable uh, and can change over time and grow with their strategies as they continue to evolve in the new ways that we're engaging along. So Melissa, thanks. That was a, a really interesting overview. I'm um, hearing you describe this approach. It feels to me like one of the, the things that differentiates the metrics from uh, the net promoter score is that in the net promoter score, um, Jennifer and her team are very explicitly going out and asking people a particular question about a particular thing, whereas with the engagement metric approach, you're more taking advantage of data that you're already collecting in various ways, shapes, and forms, or you're inferring um, things about people's engagement from behavior that you can observe in the context of things like social media, uh, Google Analytics, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about about taking better advantage of the data you've already got or things that you can observe? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this uh, engagement metrics and data can be used really strategically when it comes to segmenting uh, your alumni audience and, and being strategic with how you're placing different programs and initiatives into the market. Um, it can be as simple as really better understanding um, how to more cost-effectively mail out to your alumni. Um, if you have alumni that aren't participating in giving and aren't engaging in any way, shape, or form, it can be really difficult to recreate that college experience that uh, maybe that's a group that you use your metrics to identify to, to um, eliminate them from your mailing outreach so that you can put those resources somewhere else. Um, so it can really be used to identify different segments in the market to not only understand how to place resources, but identify where are the best places to resource, place resources that are going to have the most impact. Great. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I actually had a question about, um, Melissa, you, you talked a lot about um, it's important to be able to ad adapt and change as you're um, you know, changing what your goals are. I wonder if there's any best practices for actually implementing that, because I'm remembering back in the day when people were actually collecting information in Excel spreadsheets or even on paper and then inputting into something. It's hard once you start a process to actually either scrap it completely or modify that. So I'm just wondering with new technologies, whether it's TASL or other things that are out there, 
um, how easy can it be for an alumni office to pivot and change directions? Yeah, I think a, a big trend we see is really kind of along these uh, weight-based engagement metrics. And with um, new technologies today, it's as easy as if you have the data and it's recorded that the engagement happened, it can be as simple as, you know, changing the weight over time with, um, you know, as this more and more uh, young professionals are coming out into the workforce that where career services are going to be more and more important because that generation is switching jobs more frequently that, you know, in a certain period of time, you may be putting more weight towards those type of activities than some of the traditional activities that you currently have. So as long as you have the data and the record there that the engagements have happened, being able to apply new weights or new algorithms is going to be very, very simple for institutions with the way new technology is to be able to be really adaptive over time. But it all starts with having the data in one centralized spot so that you can apply those different methods um, and really use it to your advantage. Great. So this is a question for both of you, actually, that's sort of triggered by this, this most recent um, focal point. Do you think that when we think about data and how we can future-proof um, metrics initiatives, do you imagine that this is always going to be an additive thing, where we have new data sources and we keep folding them into the fold? And sure, we may change the weighting, we may change the formula. Um, but that it's always going to be additive, or can you imagine scenarios in which you might stop tracking things if it turns out that they're not they're not relevant to what you're trying to do? I couldn't imagine such a thing, but <laughs> <laughs> heresy. <laughs> I think again, it comes back to the why and the, the strategy behind it, because there's so much data out there, and there's so many ways you can slice and dice it, and. Time and time again, we get requests for, it'd be great to see um, data this way. And, and it always comes back to, well, why do you want to see it that way? And if it's just, uh, you know, just curious, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the, kind of the best use of your time, even from a data collection standpoint. So it comes back to really thinking about the why as to why you're collecting it. Um, I do see it changing and evolving and the accessibility of, um, you know, what's available to institutions, not only with what they're collecting, uh, at an institution, but what can be self-reported, what can be reported locally, what can be pulled off of, um, you know, different API uh, sources off, off, the web, off the web and different resources that we're engaging with alumni. So I think there's always going to be more and more things that we're adding, but I, I, I challenge everybody to really be thinking strategically as to what they're collecting now, why they're collecting it, and how they can really kind of generalize into different buckets uh, so that they are not changing too much from the strategy, but can evolve within that scope. Yeah. And I would say, um, I think the, the job of uh, data collection, well, it's going to go from collection, which is increasingly easier and easier, um, to the uh, data fluency, if you will. Um, so it's more about finding the stories in that data and then translating those to implementation. And I think that's why... Um, it's been, it, it was pretty successful at Cornell was, it wasn't just, okay, everybody, here are your reports. Oh, you got more event attendees, good for you. Um, it was, why are people coming to your events and helping people understand how to use that data. And sometimes it doesn't have to be like you're working for a sales organization where your quarterly numbers make or break your career. A lot of it is just over time finding the stories in your big data that you can then use. So Net Promoter is one example. Um, the other example maybe leads into my next case study, if you want to go there. Go there. Okay. Um, so this is a perfect um, example of looking at the big, big picture of data um, and then just sort of continuing to make sure that the story stays the same. So 
you know, in alumni relations, um, we do a lot of events, a lot of in-person events. And a question I always ask staff um, is, are you an event planner or an engagement officer? And those are different things. Um, event planning, really, you need a lot of skills to do that. It is a very specialized skill set. But we were finding we were doing about 2,000 events at Cornell every year um, and several hundred here at Lehigh as well. And to what end? So people come, they have a good time, they leave. Um, they come watch a sporting event, they cheer on the team, they leave. Um, what else are they doing? And if you think about it, an event is actually an investment in an alum. We're actually paying more for the event than even if we charge them. So it's a big cost center. And I wanted to see, are these events effective? So I went down a whole bunch of roads trying to figure out, well, if someone comes to a happy hour, do they give more? Do they volunteer more? Well, if someone comes to a presidential event, do they give more? And that was, we had so much data. Um, and it wasn't classified in those ways. So I just got exhausted with that. And I thought, well, let's look at frequency because that's how the annual fund does it. They look at loyal donors and they have found over and over again that if someone gives more than two or three years, then you have them for life and their giving starts to increase. So I thought, well, let's look at events that way. So um, at both institutions, um, looking at the number of people who come to events and then looking at the number of unique event attendees. And what I found is that um, most people, um, about 70 or 80%, depending on what you're, what events you're looking at, only come to one thing in a year, and then they don't come back. Um, and when they only come to one thing in a year, we do not move the needle in terms of giving or volunteerism. So here we were trying to do all these events to get the maximum number of people out at these events, but they weren't coming back. And so when you think about that, um, it, it's not a sustainable business model because you just keep trying events and trying events. And again, to what end? You're not getting anything back from those alums um, that you can measure anyway. So um, taking a look at that in, in a couple of the areas I managed at Cornell and here at Lehigh, I've said, well, let's stop doing so many events and focus instead on following up with people using the Net Promoter Surveys as a tool to do that. Um, but also um, creating better marketing, creating um, you know, focus groups and doing things to talk to the alums who you worked so hard to get into that room um, and who actually got a babysitter for the night. Maybe they paid a registration fee, they left work early, whatever it was that they gave up to come to your event. Now let's capitalize on that and cross sell or upsell them to do other things um, that contribute to the university. Um, so we have started doing that and we do notice when we reach out and we reach out again and we reach out again, um, we invite them to things that, um, you know, you came to this thing, now come to this similar thing, um, we get much better um, return rates. So the trick is that I haven't figured out just yet is what is that balance between trying to get new attendees and get repeat attendees? Um, I'm still working on that. but. Um, at least at Cornell that helped us cut down on the number of events that the programs I was managing did and help them become engagement officers, not event planners. Thanks, Jennifer. So it sounds like the data has been telling you here that what you ought to be doing is you mm -hmm. should be focusing on a narrower, deeper pool as opposed to a, a broader, shallower pool. Um, yeah. And I think this is, this is really interesting, right? Because what you're doing is you're, you're introducing a dimension of time to the notion of doing research. It's not just a snapshot in time, but it's a whole series of snapshots so you can yeah. see how the, the picture is changing. Yeah. Um, how much time in your experience do you think is necessary before you can start 
perceiving trends that you you have enough confidence in that you're you're prepared to change your the way you do things? Um, I mean, it, it took. I looked at events on a five. You know, I, we had event data um, going back ten years, but I would say even just for a year to look back and see how many people just came to one thing um, is a really telling um, metric. Um, the other thing is even, so looking at the hard data is important, but then also as Melissa has been saying, looking at what your institution wants from alumni relations, the opportunity cost of planning a good event, it takes us about 80 to 100 hours to plan a really good event and thinking about what else could I be doing or should I be doing with those other, with that 80 to 100 hours if I stop doing so many. Um, it allows us to do things that our VPs have been asking us to do, like um, coordinate more closely with gift officers to help them cultivate the prospects, um, you know, responding better to people on social media, that interaction. Um, you know, working harder on the marketing, all of that kind of stuff that is on our all of our lists that we never actually get around to. Um, the opportunity cost of not doing so many events and still seeing um, really good event attendance, that can be done immediately. Mike, what are you thinking listening to this? I was just wondering, you had mentioned that you haven't found the right balance yet of, you know, Focusing more on the, that group versus trying to engage the less engaged. Um, what what now though is trying to driving your decisions because on a day to day basis you're trying to allocate you know finite resources. What 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 are you thinking about when you plan? Um, a lot of it is driven, and I've only been here at Lehigh for a year. Um, a lot of our stuff, as I imagine at other schools, is based on tradition. So we. Not that we have to do it, but it's um, it's something that's kind of baked into the institution. Um, like um, sporting events are really big here. We right now have a, a rock star um, Portland Trailblazer who went to Lehigh, and so we've been doing these events around the country focused on him. Um, and that's sort of something that we have to take advantage of that. Um, so even if the data were to say, one way or another, these are all new people, these are all repeat attendees. Um, I would still want to do that event because we're getting such great social media from that and such excitement around him. So um, sometimes it's not always driven just by the hard data. Um, it's driven more on what are the traditions of the school, what are the points of pride of the school, best take advantage of those. Thank you. So here's a question that is triggered by a comment that Dan Gould uh, posted online. His comment was, in addition to having someone on staff, data analysis is a great skill for all alumni officers to better understand audience. So my question is this. It's great in an ideal world if you can wave a wand and you can have a team of dedicated data analysts. That's a fantastic thing, and, and you should be happy about that. But if what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people to use data to do what they do more efficiently or with greater impact, what baseline level of data literacy do you think it's necessary to have throughout your staff to uh, sort of affect this type of culture change towards data-driven decision-making? That's a million-dollar question, because um, a lot of the people, a lot of current staff are hired because they're um, phenomenal with people, and they're great volunteer managers. And that doesn't always translate to being data dorks. <laughs> you know? um, so that's where I go back to um, having people in the organization that are statisticians or really, really data literate who can also translate the stories so that not every associate director um, needs to have a degree in stats or that kind of interest. 
um, but they can hear the stories and use the data and be guided by somebody who is. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, uh, it's always great to have the analytical staff and the analytical mindset. Um, we were recently out in Seattle at Case and the, uh, saw a great presentation where they said, find your data nerds um, and your and your, your data friends in your office because they're going to be the ones who get really excited about looking at data this way. But a lot of it can be done really uh, in simplistic ways that um, you see a lot of people getting really overwhelmed with uh, the, the idea of, of collecting metrics and organizing metrics because they, they hear the word export, import, pivot, export, import, pivot over and over again, and people don't want to necessarily go through that process because they are people who want to spend their time connecting with people and building relationships. Um, but I think just having a good process and plan in place and, and keeping it simple, there's, there's really great ways you can leverage a lot of data in a very simple way that will really give you the time back to, to have that high impact and, and those great relationship building opportunities without having to be um, you know, a super analytical person doing high-level analytics and, and putting algorithms in place to do predictive analytics in, in any shape, way, shape, or form. That could be really effective in, in any office and small staff. There's yeah. a lot you can do with Excel. Oh, yeah. Yep. There yeah, is, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would completely agree that I think same with, um, say, survey design or fielding a survey to, to test the whys of um, wh what your alumni are thinking or doing. Um, well, it's great to have you know a professional designer, a, a perfect survey, and field it correctly, and look at all these um, data splits. There's also very um, easy gains by just fielding a short survey, even if you're looking at in Qualtrics um, analysis. Maybe it's not perfect; the data is not completely clean, but at least it's going to tell you something. And I think a lot of people, especially in smaller shops, are getting you know can get really held up by. I don't exactly know how to do this. I don't know if I'm doing it correctly. Therefore, we're just not going to do it. But I think you're not you're not losing anything by just trying and just getting some baseline information. Um, um, like Melissa yeah. said, there's very simple, easy ways to get you know even append data to survey data. If you don't know how to do that, an IT guy could do that in five minutes. Uh, a, a stats PhD can help you. Very simple things that. Um, just, just thinking, I, I can't do this or I don't know how to do this doesn't mean it can't be done easily. Just, you just have to find the right person and ask for help. Right. Well, and I would hope. I, oh, sorry. Um, my advice to all the consultants out there who do really, really, really good work and then give us these binders or give us, you know, a, a presentation on what they found, um, help us in this regard to keep us going with the data because what. Some of my experience has been that a, a great consultant comes in, does all this work, presents, and then leaves, and we never, we don't engage them anymore. Um, but I think they need to keep on us to do what you're saying, Mike, of um, kind of coaching us how to keep using the data um, and coaching our VPs and our AVPs to really look at the data and use it. Um, I think it just, that, that would really help our industry. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's something I always appreciate doing when I get follow-up questions or asking, you know, can you look at this question by young, younger and older alumni and see there's a difference? Um, that's driving your programming and your decisions. And it's, um, it's great to see that the actual data that's taken at a very specific point in time kind of lives on in all these, um, you know, continuing questions that your, your team has. So it's, it's great. So I'm thinking about culture change. I think that I agree with everything you all have been saying, but I do think there, there could be an opportunity to develop our staff with some instruction in very basic statistical literacy. Mm -hmm. And we've got sort of an analogous situation here at Cornell where we're 
we're making a big investment in our digital initiatives. And we've realized that it's easier to have a conversation about what Google Analytics about a web page are telling you about its impact if you don't have to start that conversation by educating the person you're talking to, the program area person, about what Google Analytics is. So we've started this digital literacy initiative where we're trying to do the absolute 101 level um, of orientation about what this thing is and what it does and how these statistics are going to be meaningful to you when the person who actually has teased out the story comes in and explains it. Yeah. And I've got to believe there's something analogous out there that could be really valuable in terms of just basic data literacy 101. Um, it's, it's the sort of thing that I could imagine being useful in just about every area of the business front office and back office that I can think of. And yet it's something that I, I don't think I've ever seen a course like that offered. Um, so hey, there's a, there's a business opportunity out there for somebody who wants to act on that. Yeah. We have a question. We have two questions from the, the online audience. Um, Nicole Merkel asks, are there any current studies I can read about alumni engagement? Um, if anything comes to mind as you hear that question, feel free to throw it on out there. And then uh, Dan Gould has a question about engagement scoring and whether or not people have folded things like university priorities, student retention, career placement or endowment growth into any of those scoring initiatives. Um, it feels like some of those may be beginning to apply outside of the advancement realm. Um, so I don't know, the whole question of a, a university level uh, scoring system is kind of interesting. Any thoughts on either of those two questions? Yeah, I can jump in, yeah, on, I can jump in on there real quick. A lot of people are getting stuck in this developing out just engagement metrics and from the very beginning is really how do they tie it to, to giving so that they can get the funding to put the resources in place to be collecting the, that data. Um, and, you know, I challenge people to always think of the other ways that that is applied. So, yeah, we know the more engaged an alum is, the more likely they are to give. Um, we'd love to prove that out with more numbers and understand what are they engaging in that's getting them more likely to give. But even having metrics on how engaged your constituent base is and, and how involved they are post-graduation is such a valuable metric when it comes to marketing from an admissions standpoint as well. So you're not just marketing, you know, the four years of, of the education that you're providing at your institution. You're, you're marketing the network that you get to be part of for a lifetime. So there's a ton of value in those metrics and understanding that. And that's more and more important to this younger demographic that, you know, is coming uh, through the pipeline for higher educational institutions where we have so much technology and can be so connected to so many things now that universities are fighting for that share of voice when it comes to staying connected to their constituent base. So leveraging numbers like that um, and, and how that ties to admissions and how that's going to tie to other pieces across the institution is going to be really, really important. The tie of how engaged are you as a student versus how engaged are you as alum is also something that's being explored uh, at a lot of universities right now um, and looking for the same resources on the student side of how do we better track and manage engagement data with the student organizations and what's happening outside the classroom and how do we correlate that to the data that's we have on alumni engagement, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of challenges that those questions face when it comes to where data is being stored and, and how it's structured at a university level. But the, the, the relationships uh, are going to be really, really important to be continuing to explore and setting up good infrastructure around collecting that data because those are the numbers that are going to be so impactful uh, across the institution and not just in the advancement shops at a university. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I, Go ahead. Um, I would argue. Um, that the alumni network is uh, the unique selling point of any institution. If you look at, uh, especially a lot of the 101 courses, 
Um, you got the electronic, um, you know, MOOCs and great books and way, so many ways to learn these days. Um, when you get out of school, everybody says, well, do you remember that biology 101 class or do you remember the people in it? Um, so there is, again, arguably, I think um, the alumni network is what a huge chunk of what you're paying for when you come to college. And I think the more that we can talk about that with our admissions um, colleagues and then also with the people who are responsible for the student experience while they're here. Um, because I have found through survey work and Net Promoter as well that um, if somebody had a bad time on campus or they, they didn't feel like the institution cared about them when they were students, they're not going to care about us when they're alumni. Um, so, yeah, I, I think integrating the data that we get and the stories that we can tell from our alumni, um, that is a unique selling point of a university. Yeah, and it's, it's almost looking at, it's the approach of as soon as that new student steps onto campus, they're basically a future alumni, right? So mm -hmm. it's trying to understand their um, continuing engagements and relationships with the university as a student then carried forward. I mean, even over the course of the years I've been doing alumni research, it, it would be one question about their student experience, and now they ask a whole battery of questions because they want to know all these details. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear um, Melissa say that, you know, at some point or even now they're trying to tie a lot more of that data together um, to actually have a full picture of their student experience rather than just ask one question about it. So, yeah. Well, and I would also say that alumni relations departments um, are in a, um, a better position to do that than development because we hear all the time, all you want from me as an alum is my money. Um, and so I think other departments around campus are kind of wary of that too. Um, it's just, my personal anecdotal experience that I think we're in a unique position as alumni relations professionals to uh, to build those bridges across the different campus departments and start sharing that data. So with an eye on the clock, Melissa, let's turn to you for your final case study. Yeah, I know there was another question that was asked around people who are doing um, engagement studies and if there are studies out there. I know uh, just to give off the top of my head some of the schools that you know we're working with and schools that I know are working on engagement metrics. Um, the team at Longwood University is doing some really great things with their time-based program that they have. Uh, the team at University of Washington is doing an amazing job with uh, creating weight-based structures around how they're looking at alumni engagement. Um, Jay Dillon at University of San Francisco is doing a, a, a paper on engagement metrics and same with uh, Joseph Volan at Chicago Kent just did an entire PhD on engagement metrics and was able to do um, some really great analytics and, and understanding kind of how things correlate across different business units and uh, units across the university uh, when it comes to different engagement factors. So there's a lot of people that are looking at this and everybody's looking at it in a lot of different ways, which is really great and exciting for the industry. Um, but again, it comes back to kind of the sourcing that data and having it in a centralized spot, um, which ties nicely into my next case study, which is really around um, if you are not at a shop that has an overall goal when it comes to having an engagement metric strategy, uh, just keeping top of mind why the data is so important and the situations that might come up in your everyday job that might um, require some data to support some of the initiatives that you have. So a large thing we see um, happening across a lot of institutions is, is this 
un better understanding how to allocate the resources that they have or trying to change strategy in the programs that they currently have. Um, so people who are, have done traditionally kind of the same programming year over year looking to want to do new programming, but because of the way their budgets are set up, they're typically kind of constrained on, you know, the plans already been set in place a year prior, and this is the plan that we, we stick with kind of moving forward. So how do you really leverage data to help support uh, that argument, almost arm you with the, the, the theories and, and the, the ideas that you, you have when it comes to changing up your engagement strategy or adding in a new program or initiative. Um, so you can leverage a lot of, uh, similar to what Jennifer had said, kind of that looking at that unique engagement touch points versus the total engagement touch points that you have in your different programs to really understand where are you being most effective and what is what are the programs that are costing you the most. Um, are you doing too many events that um, you may have a great overall a registration number, but you're, the number of unique alumni you're reaching is really kind of the same alumni over and over again? Are, are there resources there that you can reallocate to new programming, like a career services program or things that are lower cost one-on-one -on -one engagements? Um, so the, the thought process here is how do you leverage and, and have this data so that you can take a look at um, what your needs are as an organization and, and developing that new program and reallocating those resources. So again, it's really taking that data and assessing where are you uniquely touching alumni, what's your strategy, what, how, what's your total reach of these different programs, um, and looking for areas that you can really kind of cut the fat almost and realign those resources into something that's new that you can be testing and, and kind of always staying in that beta mode of, of trying new things to expand your reach when it comes to engagement. Yeah, I think you you alluded to uh, the use of data to quantify your fundraising success earlier, and this is another way that I don't think anyone's ever been fired for doing things more efficiently or figuring out ways to save money. And yeah. if data can point you in that direction, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, for, for, for the shops that aren't thinking very closely about data right now, I, I can't stress the importance of, of thinking more closely about it. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of fear around this data being used as kind of a self-assessment uh, where you don't want to look at the data because you don't want to know that things aren't working well. Um, but it, it's a great way to reallocate those resources to be more effective and, and really get out of that mindset of data is not used to judge the success of you as an individual or you and your role. It's really used to really empower and, and drive change and, and try new things to really add more value back into your alumni network. And that seems to be a fear with um, surveys as well. You know, I come in, I often come in at the very beginning or the end of, a, say, an initiative or a certain period of time, and I think um, alumni offices get held up because they're like, "Oh no, what if our, the net promoter score, or their satisfaction, actually did drop a little?" And that could happen, but at the same time, you can see that they're happier with communications and events, and they've given more money and so forth. So, um, don't don't let that. Um, that, that self-assessment, that natural self-assessment that you're <laughs> you're going to feel, like stop you from actually, you know, being entrepreneurial and, and looking at things differently and, uh, you know, trying new things in your office. Well, and it seems like if you use the quantitative and the qualitative, so you look at the hard data of who came, who didn't come, and you look at the survey data together, you, you learn the why. And a lot of times the why has nothing to do with the execution or or anything it's just society's changing or you know the institution's changing or whatever the thing is there was some other huge event that night in the same city so that's why the attendance wasn't good but i think using those the quantitative and qualitative together um, really makes an airtight case uh, for 
a lot of what we've discussed. So Mike, we're, we're approaching the end of our hour here and I'd like to give you the, the final word here. Um, I think you sit in a really interesting position working with such a broad range of institutions on such a broad range of projects. Um, for the, the audience, can you talk to us about some things that alumni affairs offices should keep in mind as they think about and undertake constituent research? Absolutely. Um, I think one thing that is key is to um, have a, you don't have to have the exact sense, but at least a good sense of what you do want to benchmark and track. Um, I think a lot of alumni offices look at an alumni survey as such a huge, um, on a very large scale, and they'll do it every three to five years. So it takes so much inertia to get the, get it actually moving. They're worried about what questions to ask, who to, who to survey, how to do it. But I think um, that prevents you from actually understanding what's going on now. Um, you know, and there's a lot of other options that aren't often done. For example, you could feel different questions to different groups of your alumni, if that's what you care about. Um, so just be a little more, um, look at it as um, more innovatively. And then, and that's so, um, don't be overwhelmed by the, the vastness of what it often turns into. Um, also, don't forego actual qualitative research like um, discussion groups or focus groups with your alumni, either on the front end or back end. I usually find that that's the first thing to go, um, either because of budget or time. And even if you do a very um, low impact, low effort, low cost kind of touch point just to get initial feedback, that can really help in the survey development because you'll hear, hear all sorts of things that you didn't even know might be issues or concerns of your alumni. Um, and then most importantly, do not hesitate for ask, to ask for help. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a huge network of people like us who love talking about this stuff. We can point you to resources. We can help you with survey questions. Um, you know, you don't you don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, implement something. You can get help very easily. So um, reach out. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Uh, any final words from from Jennifer or Melissa? Uh, no, this was fun. Um, I think if anyone wants to talk about Net Promoter in detail, um, I talk to schools probably once a week or so about um, implementing Net Promoter systems and how that works, how it doesn't work. Um, so I'm always happy to, to chat people up. Yep, same here. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I love talking about data and metrics and uh, more than happy to talk with any school that's thinking about building a metric system or uh, thinking about data and how to centralize it. We, we love to kind of share best practices and the stories that we hear in working with our customers and I'm excited to make, make new data friends. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Jennifer, uh, Melissa, Mike, thank you so much for joining, joining me today on Advancement Live. Thank you. Um, Thanks, as always, to our program sponsors, Constituent Research and M. Stoner. Uh, I think conversations like this are, are why we do what we do, and we really appreciate the support. Uh, that's it for this week, and my co-host, Kim Brown, will be back in a couple weeks with another great episode of Advancement Live.